Good morning. We're back in Jonah, chapter 3, second part of chapter 3. And uh, we're going to talk about the change that takes place. So as we talked last week as we entered in, uh, we see that Jonah had a change of heart. He repented. He's going on his way to Nineveh. And it talked about the second chance that God gives us in things. And we are thankful to God for the second, the third, and subsequent uh, chances that God gives us. And we're going to see this played out today in Nineveh. And the question really is, is now that Jonah is on his way to do what God had first called him to do, how is the Ninevites going to respond to this? Are Jonah's fears of maybe being persecuted or put to death, are they going to be uh, vindicated? Is that going to come to be? We don't know. Is it going to be received with disbelief? How many times do we share something that has happened or that God has done and there's disbelief? Maybe they would just laugh at him as this prophet of God that comes. Maybe they would ignore it and say it's, it's really irrelevant to them as they are not believers. Or again, maybe they would just uh, turn nasty again and persecute the messenger. But how was it received? We see a different response to the word in the Bible all through the New Testament. When the gospel was shared, we can see Paul in Acts 17, 18, it says, what is this babbler trying to say as he was trying to share the gospel message? We need to understand that when God calls us to share our testimony, to share what God is doing in our life, it's not always going to be well received. It may not be well received by our family or by our friends or by our co-workers or by our neighbors. They may not uh, have the response that we pray that they have, but we continue to pray, we continue to share, and so we can be like Paul where it says, what is this babbler trying to say? Sometimes the words we share just don't make sense to some of the believers. After the public address on, on Mars Hill, we also see in Acts 17.32, when they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered. They sneer sometimes at God's message, meaning they just sort of laugh at it and put it off in their mind. Other places were... Paul and others took the word of God. It tells us that they were persecuted, that they were imprisoned even in their life and threatened. So what happened when Jonah went? Well, we've read the book enough. We probably know the story. As he preached to this godless, violent, and proud city of Nineveh, it says that they received it. So verse 5 goes on to say this, And then the people of Nineveh believed God, proclaimed a fast, and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. When we look at that, we see the life-changing power of the Word of God. We know that the Word of God is seeds that are planted into people's lives. And so it says that they believed, they heard, and instead of all those negative responses that we talked about, they actually believed what God was doing. They took heed to what they had been told. And it says that they heeded what they had heard which means that they also applied it to their life. So it says that the Ninevites believed. Did they believe Jonah? No. It says that they believed God. Verse 5 says it very clear. So the people in Nineveh believed God. Jonah was just the messenger. Jonah was just voicing what God had to say. It's God's word, not Jonah. Jonah was the conduit. 
We are just the conduit that God uses to share his word, to share his message, to share the things that we need to hear to those that are lost in this world. God's word from Jonah was accompanied by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so we know that there is power in the word of God. That's why we preach the word of God. That's why many times in our lives we say, you know, my opinion really doesn't matter, but what God's word says is what's important. It's God's word that needs to get in to the heart and change the life. 1 Thessalonians 1.5 says, Our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit, and with deep conviction. See, there's something about when we share the word of God with a lost generation, with the world, with those that are searching, there's something about the word of God that, that gets into a person's life. And even if they sneer, even if they reject, even if they think you're a babbler, the word of God is there and it is doing its work. It's like the farmer in the spring when he plants the seed or all those of us that are gardeners, we put the seed in the ground and we don't see stuff for a long time, but there is something that is happening under that ground. And pretty soon we see it take hold. So it's important, I think, for us to remind ourselves that the word of God is what is important. I don't want to be the convictor of others. I want God's word to be the convictor of others. Tozer said this, he says, The gospel is light, but only spirit, the spirit, the Holy Spirit, can give sight. So the gospel is the light, that's the truth that we hold as our standard in this world. But it's only the Holy Spirit, when it gets in somebody's life, that can really give them sight. I once was blind, but now I see. We see our condition for what it is. We see that we are sinners that are lost, that we need God's grace and God's mercy in our life. It's important for the church also to remind herself that it isn't the finely spoken words that are said by the pastor, by the orator, by the person sharing the message. It's not just those fine words. It doesn't just matter on great media resources. Oh, we got all this high technology today in the churches, and, and that's wonderful. Those are tools to be used, but it's not dependent upon that either. It's not about personal charisma. Well, that person is so, uh, you know, relates so well and makes everything so applicable. It's not just about that either. It's not about good business techniques. And unfortunately, many churches today run as a business, as an organization, instead of an organism. But it's God. Paul says, not simply words, but he says, but power, the power of the Holy Spirit in a person's life. And when we don't like what the Holy Spirit is doing in our life or is saying to us, we have a couple options. One is to either submit to that Holy Spirit and get our life right with God, trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. That's option one. Or we can be like Aaron who fashioned a God after the, the idols that he wanted. Many in this world today make a God that they want. If it's a God of judgment, if it's a God of vengeance, if it's a God of love, of a God of mercy. And they, they formulate their own gods. They've handcrafted their own God. And so they turn away from the truth and they go and make their own idols. Such power comes through prayer and a dependence on God in our life. We need to continue to pray for ourselves, to pray for one another and never give up. We need to be committed to what God has called us to do. So we see as a result of Jonah's preaching with the saving power 
of the Holy Spirit to Nineveh. And it says all the way from the servant to the king. From the least of these to the greatest, it says, believed this message. Remember we talked about how big Nineveh was? Anywhere from 600,000 to to maybe a million people. And it says that they believed from the least to the greatest. The king, it says, rose. Verse 6, then the word came to the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne and laid aside his robe, covered himself with sackcloth and satin ashes. That's a sign of repentance. That's a sign of humbling themselves. Right above that, it says, too, that the, uh, that the ones that were hearing it along the way in a fast, it says uh, they proclaimed a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of these. But here's the king, the one who had all the power and authority in that town. And it says that he stripped himself down and he sat in sackcloth and he covered himself with ashes. He humbled himself to what God was going to do. And he declared, it says that he put on this declaration that all should call upon God and give up their evil ways in their violence. Same thing John the Baptist would do a few generations later. A call to repentance. Give up your ways. Give up your sin and follow what Jesus has for you. Why? Because he said in Jonah 3.9, Who knows? God may yet relent with compassion and turn from his fierce anger that we should not perish. The eyes were open. They knew that they were going to perish in their sins, that they would be lost. And he said, maybe, maybe, the king said, if we do this, if we repent of our ways, if we give up our evilness and our violence, he says, maybe God may relent with his compassion and turn from his fierceness towards us. That seemed to have been a very negative message, really, that that carried this positive seed of hope in it. When Jonah went there, what did he say? Forty days and you will be no more. You will be destroyed. But repent and be right with God. See his grace and his mercy. And it says that the king himself had recognized that. Do we recognize that in our life when God is speaking to us? That we need to repent of our evil ways. That that we need to, to turn from the thoughts and the things that we have in our life and to get right with God. King might have been thinking, why was this strange Jew sent to us? Who's this this man that's coming out of nowhere? Why was he sent to us? Why did God send him all this way with his word? There had to be those questions because a Jew would not have been welcomed into Nineveh because as part of Assyria, remember, the enemies of Israel. Maybe Jonah recounted his own story that it happened to him. I was running from God. And I was trying to get away. And and they threw me over the ship and a great fish swallowed me up. I lived three days. And I remembered God and I remembered his graciousness and his mercy. And God spared me. And God put me back on land. And that's why I'm here today. Maybe he shared that story with the Ninevites. And they just found that amazement and that wonder. Yes, God's merciful, maybe the king realized. That God is gracious, God is merciful. Could it not be that he intends to show mercy to us also? That little flicker of hope, that that little bit of, of, of realization that God's grace just may be poured out on us. And there's the king. The king didn't play with the message. It says that he took it seriously 
and that he acted upon it right away. And so we see God's sovereignty in action. We see the compassion that took place. Verse 10 goes on to tell us, when God saw uh, what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he had compassion and did not bring upon them the destruction that he had threatened. The answer to God's desire for all of us. It is God's desire that none should perish, but that all should come to everlasting life. He tells that to all of us. We are in a dispensation of grace where God's grace is poured out towards us and for us. And the message is still the same. He doesn't desire that we should perish, but that we should repent, that we should come back to him. God in his mercy was quick to act. As soon as he saw that the Ninevites were repenting, as soon as he saw the reception of the message, it says that he had compassion on them and he relented on his threat of destruction. Psalms 103.8 says this, The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. Maybe God's being patient with you through some trial that you're going through, through some stage of rebellion that you're going through, but we need to realize that the day is going to end. The message is there. The offer is here. Now he gives us. Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day that we can get right with God. But we are not guaranteed any time beyond that. Are you hearing God's voice? This was really the basis of, of Jonah's later complaint to God, right? In chapter 4, we'll be getting into that in the next week or so. I knew that you were a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in love. A God who relents from sending calamity. See, that was the whole purpose Jonah didn't want to go, right? Because he knew God was a gracious God. And God was a merciful God. And that God may save his enemies. He may save those that Jonah despised. And may I even say probably hated with the very core of his being. He knew that God was gracious and compassionate. That he was slow to anger. That he's abounding of love. He's a prophet of God. He knows these characteristics. And we know we know these characteristics of God. And we like them when they're for us. We like them when they're for our families. But when for, they're for those that we despise. When they're for those that we consider evil. And uh, are our enemies in this life. Sometimes it angers us. Matter of fact, I think chapter 4 opens... Uh, up with that it says but it displeased Jonah exceedingly and he became angry can you imagine being angry with God for doing what is good and right sometimes our emotions and our feelings get in the way of that so he says that he knew that he was gracious he knew that he was merciful he knew that he may do these things but God showed grace and mercy because that's part of his character that's part of who he is when I talked about fashioning gods in our, in our own image or in our own likeness or the gods that we want because that's what we want to show. When we're angry with people, we want a God of vengeance. We want a God of judgment. We want a God that is going to strike those people down. If we are in the midst of something and, and we want acceptance for sin in the things that we're doing, then we want a God of love and we want a God of grace and we want a God of mercy. What we forget is all these characteristics are of God, but God never overlooked the sin of Nineveh. He never overlooked the sin of Assyria, but he was calling them to repentance. And so it says, 
that when he saw this, that he saw the Ninevites change, and that's why God relented. God's character is full of all these things, all for a purpose, all for a time. The Bible makes it clear that it's part of a Christian character to be merciful. You know, God calls us to be merciful. It says, to whom mercy has been received, mercy shall be given. So when we receive God's mercy, it's our opportunity, it's our privilege to give mercy to others. Matthew 5, 7 says, Blessed are the merciful, for they will show mercy. See, that's the attributes that we can have that are God's. God has implanted those things in our life. D.M. Lloyd-Jones says this, Because they, talking about Christians, have already obtained mercy, therefore they are merciful. Are you merciful in your life? Are you merciful to those that, that, that you don't see eye to eye with? And again, grace and mercy, remember what those are? So grace is receiving something that, that you have not earned, right? It's a free gift, no ties, no strings attached. It's receiving something that you don't deserve, but mercy is not receiving something that you do deserve, right? So grace is like a gift. Somebody came in today and said, here's a, a specially made cookie just for you. Well, what did I do to, to deserve that cookie? You didn't do anything. I just wanted to give you this cookie. That's grace. That's just a wonderful thing. Mercy, and you know I always use the, the example of a police officer because I used to get tickets years ago. But if they pull you over and they give you a warning, I deserve a ticket. But they don't give it to you. They give you a warning. God gives us the warning. Remember the barometer we talked about last week? The Bible, the Word, is our barometer. It's our warning that we have saying that a storm is coming eventually. Are you prepared for that? Are you ready for that? So when we exercise mercy to people in our lives, maybe they deserve to be shunned. Maybe they deserve to be, uh, you know, for you to be angry with them and to have nothing to do with them. But mercy overcomes that. Mercy is the opposite side of the coin of grace. They're two sides of the same coin. Mercy turns into grace when we exemplify that characteristic of God in our life. Believers know and have experienced mercy in their life. We all have, if you're a born-again believer sitting here today, you know what God's mercy is. You've experienced again in your life and what a privilege we have to show it towards others. If you fall, if you've sinned against your loving Father, which we all have, if you find yourself either presently or in the future in a sinful situation and you've gone against something uh, that God has called us to do, His mercy allows you to come to His throne and repent of those things. It's His grace that's going to restore you, but it's His mercy that keeps you safe. Remember the great net that we talked about, the Golden Gate Bridge, and how work had slowed down so much because people were falling and dying, and there was a fear that had overcome, but they put that great net underneath the bridge, and that fear now became faith. They were confident in what they could do. Many believers today walk in fear when God says we need to walk by faith. Are you walking through faith? Deuteronomy 33 says this, The eternal God is your refuge, and underneath are his everlasting arms. It's like that Golden Gate Bridge. We're walking in our, in our Christian walk, and 
Are you fearing of falling and failing in God's eyes? Well, guess what? The Bible says we are all going to fail. We are all going to fall. Doesn't give us a blanket to do it. Doesn't mean that we do it unrepentantly or unthoughtfully. But when we know that God's arms are there to catch us, that God's grace and mercy are there to embrace us when we fall, then as John, 1 John says, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins when we come to him in that way. So how do we know that the Ninevites truly repented? How do we know that they really took God's command to heart? Verse 10, Then God saw their works, and they turned from their evil ways, and God relented from that disaster. And God saw their works. See, we don't do our works for salvation. We do our works because of salvation. God saw their works. He saw that their, their profession was true, that their profession was real, that their, their life was changed. And so it says that he saw what they had did and how they had turned from their evil ways. Because true repentance involves turning away. True repentance involves not just remorse, because remorse is being sorry, but repentance is being sorry enough to stop. It's given really to go the other way. It's a 180 in our life. God's unbending justice. We see in the life when it says all will stand before him, right? We see God's mercy in its highest and greatest expression in Jesus when he was upon the cross at Calvary. And so we see God's unbending justice and rich mercy meeting at that cross. His unbending justice is sin has to be paid for, right? Justice rightly demanded that we answer for our sins. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There's none righteous, not one. The wages of sin is death. And so justice rightly demanded that we answer for our sins. But mercy called for compassion and forgiveness in our misery. It's a miserable state to know that I am lost without Jesus. It's a miserable state to know that I don't have eternal hope. What lies beyond this life? That's the emptiness that fills this world today. So yet, through all this, we see his justice and we see his mercy. And in God, in his wisdom, he satisfied both on Calvary. And that's the grace that God gives us. The Ninevites several thousand years ago did not have the good news that we have today. They didn't have the written word that we have today. We, we know the promises. We have so many things that, that we are so knowledgeable about. They didn't have the complete light, but yet they believed what they had heard from this one person who came. It says, thus says the Lord. When we are working in people's lives, I want you to think about that. Thus says the Lord. We know what God's word is saying. Never give up on anybody. I really say to give up on a person is to give up on God. And God does not give up. God continues to pursue us relentlessly through our life. He wants us to have that fellowship. He brings the message in to those that are lost. We may sit back and look at people and say, I can never imagine them coming to the Lord. I can never imagine their life changing. 
But what does Paul say in the New Testament? But such were some of you. There was a time in your life when probably Christians around you said, I can never imagine her coming to the Lord. I can never imagine them being faithful to God. I can never imagine their life changing. But it has. God in his mercy. So the question is, what will you do with the light that you are given in Jesus Christ? What do you do with this light that comes into your life? Matthew 12, 41 says, The men of Nineveh will stand up against uh, the judgment with this generation and condemn it. Isn't that amazing that Jesus talks about this so much later in Matthew? The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repent, repented at the preaching of Jonah, and now one greater than Jonah is here. And of course, that was Jesus. Have you accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior? Don't be like that. Don't be like that person that hears and doesn't receive. Hear the voice of the Son of God. Hear what Jesus is saying to you today. Know His Holy Spirit can be alive and active in your life. Trust and obey and receive the blessing of life. Have that peace in your life that surpasses all understanding that will keep and guard your hearts. Let's pray.